Make your way to Acts 18. As we continue to consider the journeys of Paul, his witness of the Gospel, I ask you this morning, Christian, have you ever been embarrassed to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you ever been gripped by fear when facing an opportunity to proclaim the Gospel to an unbeliever? Have you experienced debilitating weakness as you set out to witness Jesus to people that are separated from the Lord by their sin? I want to be honest in this sermon on a lot of levels and to really speak to this fear of our heart. I think if you say, you know, I really don't have those fears. I've never faced a fear of witness. I've never been embarrassed to stand for Christ. If you would say, no, that really honestly does not apply to me, then I think the fact of the matter is that you are either living in general disobedience to Jesus' call to proclaim the gospel, or you've never been born again. Followers of Jesus who take seriously the call to proclaim Jesus crucified and risen are well acquainted with the struggles of shame and fear and trembling weakness of soul. We need to crush this myth that there are gifted evangelists out there who are essentially fearless when they witness for Jesus. They have this spiritual body armor and everything just sheds off of them. They're untouchable. If you ever find such a witness, you can be sure that that person's a fraud. Either that or just has never really ventured very far across enemy lines. Proclaiming repentance in Jesus' name to a world in Satan's grip is a spiritual battle of cosmic proportions. It can strike fear in the most courageous of souls. In fact, perhaps the greatest evangelist among all the followers of Jesus Christ journeyed some 40 miles by land from the city of Athens to the glistening city of Corinth. And as he ministered in Corinth, the Apostle Paul later admitted he did so. These are his words, 1 Corinthians 2-3. In weakness and in fear and with much trembling. That's the great Apostle. He was way behind enemy lines. And if you go far enough back, you know what it is to fear. In his second epistle to the Corinthians, he said, these are his words of himself, he said, I had afflictions without, but I had fears within. He spoke of himself, again his words, as downcast and in need of comfort. Does the fear of man assault your desire to witness for Jesus? Do you understand that fear? Do you face that shame from time to time? I think there's few people in history who could any more knowingly put an arm around us like the Apostle Paul and say, I know your struggle. I know that struggle. I understand. 
as the context of Acts 18 will bear out and as Paul's later letters to the Corinthians attest, these days in Corinth were challenging for Paul. It was a tough time. And I'd like us to note, I just ask that you watch as we work our way through this passage. Notice in the midst of this fear and discouragement how God systematically brings people into Paul's life to strengthen him. He assembles people around him to encourage him and gives him a voice to strengthen his heart. He quaked with fear, but God thundered with support and He used Paul to dramatically penetrate the darkness of Corinth with the light of the Gospel here in Acts chapter 18. In the first segment of this chapter, we see that Paul teams up with Aquila and Priscilla. It's a very interesting development as he faces these fears in Corinth. Chapter 18, verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Let's stop for just a moment to think about the city of Corinth. There's such great history in all of these cities, but Corinth was a fairly new city with a new history. It was densely populated, relatively new buildings here. Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. You see it there in Greece to the far left on this map and over to uh, just near Athens, about a 40-mile journey by land. It lay on this narrow isthmus or land bridge that linked the Peloponnesus, the southern peninsula of Greece, to the mainland or the, the northern part of Greece called Macedonia, the region of Macedonia, with a port on either side of this three and a half mile stretch. You can see on the map it doesn't even show up under the dot, but there's just this little three and a half mile spit of land. And on this land, Corinth has on either side a port city which meant that it had a controlling place on the Adriatic and the Aegean Seas. A canal would later be dug across, but at this time there was a slipway that allowed small ships to be transported across land, across this isthmus, sparing their crews a harrowing 200-mile journey by sea around the southern tip of Greece. So as you think of this, putting it together, I mean, think through the implications. Corinth really controlled... It was a controlling commercial center commanding trade routes in all four directions. Yet above all, Corinth was not only a great commercial center, but was famous for its sex trade. The temple of Aphrodite was no longer standing when Paul arrived, but it had been there. There's a 2,000-foot height right there at Corinth, and on the top of that height was the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Every night, 1,000 prostitutes would come from that temple and descend down into the city, plying their trade there among the sailors and among the citizens of the town. The temple was gone, but the practice was long entrenched. In fact, a prostitute was just called throughout Greece a Corinthian girl. So infamous was this city for its wickedness. Corinth was proverbial for sensuality. She was a city held firmly in the death grip of Satan. But as John Stott notes, if trade could radiate from Corinth, so could the gospel. And that was exactly Jesus' agenda for Corinth. And he had a great one. Not much happening in Athens, this great intellectual center. But in Corinth, God had a plan. Verse 2, we continue as we consider... a 
Aquila and Priscilla joining Paul, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, that would be up on the Black Sea on the southern rim, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Aquila and Priscilla were in business at Rome. We do have, I mentioned it earlier, uh, the Roman historian Suetonius who explains that the emperor had become fed up with the incessant disturbances of the Jews over some individual called Crestus. And many historians believe that's just a, really a reference to Jesus Christ, just a corrupted use of the name on the part of Suetonius. But I think it is very likely, contextually here, that Aquila and Priscilla already knew the Lord when Paul met them. There's no reference to them coming to Christ, no reference to their baptism, no type of they were baptized and their household kind of phrase here. It would appear that they already knew the Lord when they connect. And there's undoubtedly been witness in Rome for Christ. Paul's not the only one proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is moving east. It's moving very hard to the west. And he meets this couple there in Corinth. We do not know if it was a chance meeting. They were working together, we learn here, as tent makers. And perhaps just in the context of work, they came to uh, meet one another. But it says that he went to see them. That's all that we know here in verse 2. And it might be that their fame had passed before his eyes somehow and he had come to connect with them. Maybe somebody tipped him off. But because, it says, verse 3, he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. They would have been working almost very likely with uh, leather and making tents, awnings, and occasionally clothes from uh, leather. This would have been their work together. We realize that Paul does not have support here in Corinth at this time, and so he is working to provide for himself. There was no church in Corinth yet at this point, but also Paul chose not to receive pay, and he did so, as Witherington says, so that he, he would not be, appear as a traveling philosopher peddling God's word and then disappearing with people's money or at least having abused privileges of hospitality. So during the week, he knows this difficult job of having to work all the time to provide for himself and then preaching the gospel on Sabbath. During the work week, working on tents, and on the Sabbath, verse 4, we read, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Having met then Aquila and Priscilla and working as a tent maker, Paul experiences another joy. He found kindred spirit in this couple, and they become great servants alongside of him. But there's another great line here that takes place as we come to this second track, and that is the coming of Silas and Timothy from Macedonia. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Silas and Timothy had been laboring to build up the Macedonian churches. Remember them to the north. There's Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. They're working among the believers there to deepen them in the faith. And they join Paul now here at Corinth. It had to be a grand reunion and a point of great encouragement for Paul. But now they join him here and assist him in his evangelistic efforts. There's a fairly strange phrase there, isn't there though in verse 5? 
Paul was occupied with the word. Well, obviously. Why would you say that? The Greek text actually helps us out a little bit here and gives us the indication that Paul began here to be wholly employed in the preaching of the word rather than intent making. What changed? Well, as we know from the book of Philippians, Silas and Timothy came not only with their presence to support the mission, but they also came with money from the Philippian church. And so the phrase that he is now devoted to the Word seems to indicate now he doesn't have to do tent work in the day and just speak at the synagogue on Sabbath, but now he is free to minister more thoroughly in the city because of this gift that has come. And that's a great story. We don't have time to think of it much. But remember these people in Philippi? The Roman jailer and his household. There was Lydia, the seller of purple, and her household. And there was perhaps even that pagan slave girl that had come to know Christ. What is Jesus doing up in Philippi? He's building, he's deepening the church, he's producing this grace of giving. One evidence that people have truly come to Christ as Savior is that they say, can we take of our resources this retired Roman soldier that's minding the jail in Philippi? This seller of purple, Lydia. Can we take excess resources, in fact, sacrifice, so that we can give toward the cause of the gospel somewhere else? Not just in our place, but somewhere else. The grace of giving was alive among them. Jesus was working in the Philippian believer's life, and they support Paul and his ministry here. They buy shares in the harvest that Paul will reap in Corinth. But Luke's emphasis actually falls upon the opposition that Paul receives. Verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to these Jews in the synagogue, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. He does not mean he'll never talk to Jews again. He does right away in Ephesus later in this passage. But what he means here is that here in Corinth... You have rejected the gospel. I have been presenting from the Hebrew Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, and you are rejecting that. He shakes his robe as a symbol to say, our relationship is over, I'm moving on to the Gentiles. This was Paul's pattern, wasn't it? Start at the synagogue, pointing Jews and God-fearing Gentiles to Christ as Savior. When things get too hot there, he goes to the Gentiles. When persecution hits there, or just before it hits, he leaves town. That's his normal pattern. Now is that second stage. He's moving to the Gentiles. Well, that infuriates the Jews. We knew this guy was a bad egg, and now here's the proof. He's talking to Gentiles. But what is more, he moves right next door to the synagogue. Amazing thing. Your blood be on your heads. I'm now turning to the Gentiles. In verse 7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. That is a Gentile who had come to embrace the Hebrew Scriptures, was not a full proselyte to Judaism. Undoubtedly, a man who frequented the synagogue, living right next to it. He was a God-fearer. His house was next door to the synagogue. It's an amazing thing. Gathering in the home of a Gentile God-fearer, 
right next door to the synagogue had to be a provocative move. And someone might say, who does Paul really think that he is? Is this really wise? To move right next to the synagogue and cause that much of a stir? Well, he's either obnoxious and unlovingly disruptive, or Jesus really is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Because this synagogue has resisted Jesus as their Christ, it has become an assembly of Satan. And God's people are meeting at the home of Titius Justice, a Gentile. And then in a stunning note, verse 8, we read that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Let that sink in for a while. The president of the synagogue trusts Christ as Savior. Paul baptized him, according to 1 Corinthians 1.14, and baptized his household. And others were also believing and being baptized would really be a better way to translate it. It speaks of repeated action. They were hearing the message of Christ. They were coming to belief. They were being baptized. There's a great harvest that's being reaped here. It's a harvest that's being reaped to this day. You may come to this place and have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. There's a call here, a reminder that there are people that belong to Jesus who are coming to know Him as Savior. And what is the response to that? Always we have, and it's here again, belief and then baptism. Acts is so consistent with this pattern. Belief, they were believing, and they were being baptized. What an absolutely thrilling situation. In the Gentile home of Titius Justice, right next door to the synagogue, people are hearing the gospel, responding in significant numbers. Even the president of the assembly comes to Christ, apparently in this Gentile's home. Now let's stop and think of Paul here, just for a moment. He has every reason to rejoice, doesn't he? Could you write a better script? There's this newfound partnership with Priscilla and Aquila. They're kindred spirits. They're trusted people. They even know his trade. There's a lot to talk about. They're good friends. Then there's the arrival of Silas and Timothy. That had to fill Paul just with joy. The message that the Macedonian churches were standing, and now here comes these men, and they bring money with them that relieves from him the worries of trying to provide for himself, and he is now able to work every day in the gospel. And there's great results. There are people who are believing, people who are being baptized. God has many people here in Corinth, and Paul is right at the heart of all of this great work of God. But you know what? Paul is here beset by fear. An amazing thing. Strange as it may seem, some of the most discouraging times in ministry can come when God's blessing seems most evident. You would think that Paul would be absolutely elated with all that was happening, but he did not wear a cape. He was not a man of steel. 
His body bore marks of violent persecution at Philippi, and his heart was filled with fear as he faced rising opposition from the Jews. He seems to have considered at this point then that it was time to leave town. It was time to get out of Corinth. He had been here before. He knew the drill. He goes to the synagogue. He stirs things up. Some believe. He goes to the Gentiles. The Jews connect with the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities come down hard. Just think Berea, Thessalonica, Athens, Philippi, and the beating and imprisonment there. He knows what's coming, and he's filled with fear. You see, if you stick your toe over enemy lines in the proclamation of the gospel, you may not feel a whole lot of fear. But when you get this far behind those lines, there's great danger in the spiritual battle. Paul's afraid. He's trembling with weakness. And so as he considers leaving Corinth, not saying that that's a wrong consideration, but he is driven by fear, discouragement, downcast, in some context here within his time in Corinth, and it seems to be particularly at the beginning moments, somebody else shows up. Aquila and Priscilla. What a great find. Silas and Timothy. What an encouraging thing. But now someone else speaks. And this is the ultimate support. Jesus himself encourages the heart of Paul. Verse 9. And the Lord, always in Luke's writing, speaking of Christ, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. The form of these Greek imperatives help us out here also. The idea is, Paul, stop fearing and keep on speaking. We note the connection Fear silences the tongue of Jesus' witnesses. You say, I thought that was just me. No, it's the way it works. Fear silences the tongue. How can Paul keep fear from stopping his tongue? The answer is what? Jesus says, I am with you. This recalls that great Old Testament theme of the presence of God going with His people. You remember that great scene where God calls Moses? I want you to go and deliver the Israelites from bondage. What does Moses say? God, who am I to do this great thing? Who am I? And what does God say? He ignores the question. Who am I? And God says, I will be with you. That's what matters. This is not about you, Moses. I will be with you. That's all that matters. And that is all that really matters as we take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. Jesus is with us. Now this is, of course, a specific promise to Paul in Corinth. We can't take everything out of here and apply it to us. We'll never be harmed. Obviously, that didn't even apply to Paul. It's a specific context. However, there is behind this context the nature of Jesus 
This statement reflects who he is, how his heart connects with the mission to proclaim the gospel to a lost world. Jesus will never abandon his faithful witnesses. He won't do it. When you proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, you can know, you need to know, you should cling by faith to the confident reality that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Indeed, there are few times when it is more clear that Jesus is with you than when you are standing up for Him in the face of trouble. Let's listen to experience speak on this very point. John Wesley, the famous circuit-riding Methodist preacher who poured out his life to proclaim the gospel, said as his spirit passed away, he said the best of all is God is with us. In life, in death, and in witness, Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. That's what matters. You may come today saying, I feel so distant from God. I feel so cold. I see people excited about their relationship with God, and I'm just not feeling it. Well, certainly it might be a matter of sin, and that's something that you would need to look into and indeed find counsel, and I would encourage you to do that, to determine what is between you and God. But I think one very significant source of this coldness and distance is the fact that we're not working with Jesus to save souls. I don't say that to make us comfortable, but I say that to be really honest with what's here. Do you realize what Jesus says here? I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus from his throne is actively working to draw people to himself, to bring them to saving faith. That's his work. That's what fills his heart with zeal and joy. That's what He is doing in this world, rescuing souls for Himself from their sin as His people. I have many in this city. How are we going to feel close to God when we're not doing what Jesus is doing? What does Jesus mean when he says, I have many people in the city? Is he saying, well, there's a lot of Christians around here. Then the idea would be, Paul, you're fearful. Hey, remember, there's a lot of Christians around you. You should take courage in that. Is that what he's saying? Not at all. What he is saying here is much like what he said in John 10 and verse 16. I have other sheep who are not of my fold, and they will listen to my voice. The point is that there are lost people in Corinth who have belonged from eternity past to God's fold who do not know it yet, and Jesus seeks shepherds to call them into his fold. I know, Paul, as you face these godless people in this city, I know as you face these Jews who are rejecting me as Messiah, I know that you're filled with fear, but I have people in this city. Many people, indeed, in this city, don't be afraid. Stop fearing and keep speaking. And is this not our great confidence in evangelism that there are people out there who will yield willingly to the grace of God because God is calling them 
those he has appointed to eternal life, 1348, will believe, and they're there. We need to go and to reach them. Indeed, so ripe is this waiting harvest that Jesus instructs Paul to break off the normal pattern. Right about now, he would be leaving, but he says, no, stay. Stay here in Corinth for a protracted period of time. Now, as he says, there will be no harm that comes on you. That obviously is a very specific promise to Paul here at this point in time. In fact, persecution may be the strongest attestation of God's presence. Jesus will never abandon his faithful witnesses. That is the key. So, do you fear witnessing for Christ? You're in good company. In two very different senses of the word, you're in good company with the Apostle Paul. But in a very different sense of the word, you're in very good company with Jesus Christ, who's not afraid of anyone. He is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. This is what we must take to a lost world. A faith trust in the presence of Christ to save his people. And so, verse 11, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Speed is not the only approach in evangelism. Building up the church, establishing a solid beachhead for the gospel is a worthy pursuit, even for an evangelist on the cutting lines. In the next section of verses, we learn the means that Jesus uses to protect Paul here at Corinth. Jesus knows what he's doing, and he just assures Paul enough that he will continue to carry on. We come then to the next track in this display of the history of Corinth, in the history of Corinth here. Verse 12, we have Gallio who dismisses the prosecution against Paul. Verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Here it comes. It happens city after city. Saying this, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Does the law mean the Mosaic law? Does the law mean Roman law? We're not sure, but in the end it all ends up the same anyway. The point is that Paul's teaching is an illicit religion that should be crushed. It either doesn't have connections to Judaism and therefore is an illicit religion, or it is violating the pagan moorings of Greece and the Roman Empire and is to be dismissed. Well, verse 14, Paul begins to open his mouth and speak, but Gallio said to the Jews, without even letting Paul speak, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Now, if you're tracking with Paul's journey in Macedonia, you're saying, that's, that's a little different, isn't it? Remember what happened at Philippi. He's beaten. He's imprisoned. Remember what happened at Thessalonica. The authorities come down hard upon him, and he's chased out by these same people from Thessalonica in Berea. But what happens here is that a Roman governor gets involved, and he really has no time of day for the Bible or any talk about the God of Israel. 
His response is commendable on the one hand in that this was a dispute over the interpretation of Hebrew Scriptures and he realizes that this is not a matter of sedition on Paul's part. Commendable in that sense. However, it indicates, his response indicates a high degree of apathetic disregard for anything to do with the God of Scripture. By driving them from the tribunal, he is saying they are wasting his time. This is your problem. It's of no interest to me. So whether knowingly or not, he cuts Paul off and thus rejects a hearing of the gospel. His apathy is seen in verse 7 as they see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. The Gallio paid no attention to any of this. We don't know who they is. Is it the Jews or is it the pagans? We don't really know who Sosthenes is. Does he replace Crispus or is he another president of the assembly? We're not sure why he's beaten, in fact. Some say he was the Jewish prosecutor of the case, and so the Jews beat him because they didn't like that he didn't get it done. Others say it's the Gentiles who are beating up these Jews in their all-too-common anti-Semitic way, punishing them for wasting Gallio's time. And Gallio just looks on and has no problem with it. We, we really don't know. The point is that it's Gallio's indifference that is a radically distinct outcome from what Paul has faced all along this route. Essentially, it is an innocent verdict for Paul. Gallio doesn't listen to Paul. He has no time for Paul. But what he does allows Paul now freedom to continue to proclaim the gospel. You will not be touched in this city, says Jesus. How does that happen? Providentially, he's protected by this decision on the part of an apathetic Roman governor. You guys leave me alone. And that was always to say, don't bring it up again. That's why Paul gets a year and a half here to proclaim the gospel freely without persecution. Very unique. Final track that we'll look at today as we look through just these snippets of history begins at verse 18 and deals with his return to Antioch. I say that with some trembling, uh, as that's really not much of an emphasis of the text, but I'll take it that way. As he now begins a return journey, the return to Antioch, verse 18, Paul stayed many days, I think that's probably referring to the year and a half that he was there, stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. Notice this, who did he take with him? Priscilla and Aquila. He takes them with him now in his missionary journeys. And at Sencrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Sencrea is the eastern port of Corinth. So he's setting out on, from this port city of Sencrea to head across the Aegean Sea and back home to Syria. Apparently he's going to get blown a little bit south or somehow ends up in Caesarea. But as he's on his journey, he takes this couple with him, apparently leaving Silas and Timothy in Corinth to continue to stabilize the church. Why does he cut his hair and take a vow? I say a little bit with tongue-in-cheek, knowing what we do about the Corinthians, it might be a vow to say, I'm going to love these people to the end. <laughs> they were a troublesome church to him along a number of lines, but I doubt that's why he had his hair cut and took a vow. But the vows of this day among the Jews, you would cut your hair, let it grow back until your vow was over, then cut your hair again and sacrifice it at the altar in Jerusalem. 
We're not told why he takes this vow, but often the vows typically would look back to something God had done. So it was a vow that I will do this in thanksgiving for what you have done, or it looked forward. I pray, God, that you will do this, and I will take a vow, asking and praying during the period of this vow that you will do as I am petitioning you to do. We don't know. It's between Paul and God at this point. In the text, we have no indication but we do see a man who is a very devout Jew. And taking this vow, he heads out across the Aegean. And they came, verse 19, to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. That is, Aquila and Priscilla, probably continuing their trade and tent making, he goes into the synagogue. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. He's in a hurry. He is seeking to get back. Because nobody said, Paul, will you please talk to us about the Lord? And he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I don't have time or I don't have interest. He needed to get moving for reasons we don't entirely know. But on taking leave of them, verse 21, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. God does will, and he will return and enjoy a very fruitful ministry here in Ephesus. But he leaves Aquila and Priscilla in place and heads out from Ephesus, demonstrating just how solid this partnership has become over this year and a half time together, or whatever portion of it they knew each other. Then verse 22 says that when he landed at Caesarea, he went up. You don't go up to Caesarea. Caesarea is on the sea. Where do you go up to in Palestine? you go up to Jerusalem. He went up, probably undoubtedly, to Jerusalem and greeted the church there. Then he went down to Antioch. You don't go up to Caesarea and then down to Antioch. You go up to Jerusalem and then down to Antioch from Jerusalem. So this is interesting here, and I don't want to sideline us too long, but if you'll press with me a bit, this is a very curious thing. Much is made of the vow that Paul takes at Corinth, or Sencrea, literally. And there's all kinds of discussion about why he took this vow and how it pertained to Jew-Gentile relationships and that he went back to Jerusalem to show certain things about where he was in evangelism and all of this intrigue that went into this vow. Lots written about this. The second thing we make a big deal about, every one of us does, don't we know that Paul had three missionary journeys, right? Well, he's come back to Antioch, and here's the end of missionary journey number two. This should be a really important moment in the text of Scripture, right? What's really curious is that Luke doesn't make a big deal out of either one. He doesn't even mention Jerusalem by name. Talk about downplaying the visit there. And what do we have about Antioch and the end of this second missionary journey? I mean, I would love to believe that they received Paul with open arms and great rejoicing and can imagine the stories he had to tell about Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth. What stories he had to tell. The Macedonian call, for that matter. Why were you in Greece for so long? Let me tell you about that one. It had to be a great time, but what does Luke say? After spending some time there, he departed. That's it. I don't know particularly why, if Luke's you know, running out of parchment and he just doesn't give us a lot of details here, I don't know. I'm not saying that I do, but I wonder if part of the point is this is not about Paul. 
And so there's not this massive celebration about the great missionary who has now come back. But rather, Luke downplays that as he writes the account and simply says he came back, touched base with the church, and he left again. Undoubtedly resting, gathering a team together, gaining financial support so that he can go out on another successful missionary journey. This second one has been greatly successful. He meets with the people there, but he moves on. It's not about Paul, because it's not Paul who's winning souls, it's Christ. It's Jesus who is saving the lost. And as we face this passage and the great response of the Gospel in Corinth, we must come to terms with this issue of fear and evangelism. Paul wrote about it in two more letters. It is here in the text, particularly grounded in verses 9 and 10, dealing with the fear of proclaiming the Gospel in the face of opposition. I encourage you again, and I would exhort you, that if you have no fear in evangelism, it's evidence that you're not in the game. You've got to get behind enemy lines in order to know what weak knees are all about. If we're actually stomping on enemy turf, we are going to be acquainted with fear. We're going to experience rejection. And the temptation that we all know about is that we allow the fear of man in our hearts to stop the words of God on our tongues, don't we? What's the answer? The answer is not to pretend that we're great evangelists. The answer is not to pretend that anybody else is a great evangelist and has this bulletproof vest that they wear. The answer is Jesus' promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. The answer is to place active faith in the presence of Jesus as we join Him going about from lost person to lost person, bringing people to Christ as Savior. We can rejoice in this. We've gathered on this Lord's Day to remember that Jesus lives. We can rejoice today that Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that none of us would ever have to say that. Who is he? Remember Matthew 1.23, he is Emmanuel, God with us. It is his presence that we must actively trust to work through the fears that keep our tongues silent. The answer is not to never fear again. The answer is how to deal with the fear. We do it by actively trusting in the presence of Jesus because this is His mission, not ours. Aren't you grateful for that? It doesn't rely upon me and my courage. It's Jesus who's using our tongues to win His people. We can say secondly, in light of this passage, that God's people are found among the worst of sinners. May we never forget this makes me sick to my stomach when I've heard from time to time people say, man, that person would make such a great Christian. No unconverted person makes a great Christian. 
Jesus rescues the most unlikely people for himself. The Corinthians, I mean, if you're looking at Athens and Corinth, you're going to say, maybe Athens, not Corinth. It was Corinth. God had a lot of people there. Conversion is not a reformation project. It's a transformation project. We don't go looking around for people who look like they're just about a Christian. We go around looking for sinners. Jesus can save the worst of sinners. A great harvest was reaped in Corinth. Thirdly, evangelism is not an activity for lone rangers. Paul seems to have labored in Athens alone, and we have to be willing to do the same. There's many times we're the only Christian that's there in in a relationship or in a conversation, and we must speak on our own. But did you see how God consistently put people with Paul and how Paul himself, without apology, leaned on others in his evangelistic endeavors? That's not weakness. That's God's plan. God surrounds his witnesses with other witnesses. Some discussion has taken place already within the context of our church, and we're coming to understand and to think through these matters, but I think it's one of the weaknesses of our church. We have a tendency too much, not entirely, but too much to say, we need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now go out and do that during the week on your own. Obviously, last week our doors were open to group evangelism as we joined together to witness Christ to well over a hundred individual young people. But I think we need to rethink a bit how much takes place that's just on our own backs in our own life in private. Evangelism is a group project. It is a mission for God's people working together in community. And I would challenge each one of us to talk with someone about evangelism, brainstorm some ideas, work together, holding one another accountable, and working in groups to find ways that we together can evangelize the lost. And I encourage you along those lines individually, whether in a group or as an individual, let us this week go out and trust Jesus' presence with us to overcome our fears and to proclaim the cross of Christ to the lost. And how we can rejoice, finally, that Jesus is actively conquering hearts with the gospel. I'm thankful that it's not about our technique. It's not even ultimately about the righteousness of our lives. It's not about how good we are, how fearless we are, how capable we are. Jesus is in heaven saving souls. And he's using people to bring souls to himself as Savior. May we join with them, identifying with them and working with them, but never forgetting that the mission is his. I'm very thankful to leave it there in his hands. The mission is his. It's not us, but he uses us by his grace to reach people in salvation. I wonder, is he calling you today? You say, I've not come to the place where I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I do not have a sense that I've ever really turned from me and my sins and embraced what Christ has done 
to die in my place and pay the penalty of my sin, to rise from the dead and give me life. I don't know that I've really come to be born again. Remember those people in Corinth? In this godless city, there were people believing and being baptized, people trusting Christ's work for salvation and identifying with Him and His people through baptism. Jesus is calling out a people for His own right now. And if you're hearing His voice, I plead with you to come. You say, there's something within. I long to be washed clean of my sin. I long to come to address the issues of my soul. I want to come to Jesus. Come today and trust Him as your Savior. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, our Father, for Your goodness to us in Christ. We pray that You would permit us. I don't even want to pray to be fearless but to be trusting through our fears so that we proclaim the gospel widely and faithfully. And I pray, Father, for anyone who does not know Christ as Savior, that you would bring that one to saving faith today. May we as believers hear the call of the kingdom and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in his unfailing grace. Move in our hearts to that end, we pray now. And again, draw to salvation anyone separated from Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.